Thank you. All of you may be seated. Kids, if you are going to your classes, you can go. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the second of two letters that we have from Paul to the Corinthian church. There was likely a third letter that the Holy Spirit, for some reason, didn't want us to have if it exists. But this is two of the letters that we have. And 1 Corinthians, the one that precedes this, was a very direct letter, a very strong letter that Paul wrote to this church that was struggling with pride and with worldliness and with petty infighting, not to mention having some doubts about the reality of Christ's resurrection. So Paul writes firmly, but he writes with great love to them and implores them to get their act together, if I can put it in the easiest possible term. He challenges what's going on and he confronts the sin and the disunity that existed in the church and he offers very godly, righteous solutions for how they can and should change. Now, when we look at the themes of 2 Corinthians and kind of the tenor or the atmosphere of this letter, we can pretty, pretty easily conclude that the first letter had not been that well received. Because Paul immediately has to go into a defense of his character and the integrity of his ministry. And he, you, you, can, you can sense not that he's on the ropes because the Apostle Paul was never on the ropes. But you can sense that he's having to respond to whatever they wrote back to him, which was not all love and kisses. Apparently, they, they did not uh, have a great affinity for what he had said, and there was some resistance there. So Paul uh, kind of appeals to them, accept my teaching, understand God's calling upon my life. And, and now, church, you need to focus on the eternal calling that God's given you to minister and to spread the gospel. So he appeals to to Corinth on a very high level. He doesn't get into name-calling and arguing and, well, I told you that you're wrong. Paul was way too smart for that. He takes the high road of humility and he takes the high road of calling them to a great calling that they have to do the work of ministry. And that's very prominent here in chapter 4. You don't sense when we're going to read this that there's a, a tone of, of preaching or of scolding in any way, even though he could have done that. Instead, he takes the tone of a fellow laborer, a co-laborer in the work of the gospel. And we see it simply in just the pronouns that he uses. In the verses they're going to read, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 4, ten times he uses the word we or us. And nine excuse me, seven times he uses the word our or ourselves. So he changes his focus, he includes himself as a fellow laborer, and he constantly says, hey, we've got this job, and it's about our work of ministry, and, and, and it just keeps going and going. 17 different times he uses this personal, inclusive pronoun. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but when you look at chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, you see him 10 times in 8 verses use the word I. And he argues that they need to stop arguing. He argues that they need to stop causing division. And it's a very pastoral uh, kind of approach. I'm glad I didn't do this. I'm glad I did do this. I taught you this. I told you this. It, it's very direct to them from him to them. When we get to 2 Corinthians 4, there's a lot hanging in the balance for the Corinthian church. 
Are they going to stay faithful to the Lord or are they going to fall back into worldliness? So Paul appeals to them personally, hey, we've got a job and we have a calling and our work of ministry is very important. Now, some people view, some scholars view this passage as Paul's affirmation, as saying, hey, you finally got it. But when we read it in the context of the rest of the book and him having to defend himself and telling them not to receive God's grace in vain and him telling them not to hang around with worldly people, I don't believe this is an affirmation. I think this is more of a hopeful urging, a reminding them of God's goodness and trying to pull them along because they're still dragging their feet. And he's saying, come on. Now, now we've got this work. We've got to do this. I mean, you, you get the sense of the tone there. I really want you to get that. We've got to get this right, Corinth. I wrote you that first letter. It was very direct. You didn't receive it very well. Come on. A lot's at stake here. Help me, Corinth. We've got a great calling. There's something about the way Paul writes here that as I kept studying, I sensed that he's not fully confident that they've gotten it. He's not quite sure. Sometimes when you preach or teach, you can tell that the audience is really with you, that they're really getting it. Other times you just kind of feel some walls and you go, they're not quite getting it. That's, I believe, what Paul's feeling as he writes these words. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adultering adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power would, will be of God and not of ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Now, let's take this in two sections, verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 12. In verses 1 to 6, Paul is laying out the responsibility, and it's a huge responsibility, the responsibility of the ministry that every believer is called to and the incredible priority of telling people about Christ. Verses 1 to 6 are very Christ-centered. And it's clear in verses 4 to 6 how much Paul devalues anything other than Jesus Christ and how Christ changes lives. In fact, it can't be called the gospel unless Christ is at the center of what we're talking about. There is no prosperity gospel. There's no emergent gospel. There's no adjective gospel, okay? It's only the gospel. 
And the gospel is only the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not pervert the word by adding anything else to it, because that gospel is not a gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's only good news if it's about Christ. So he draws them back to the gospel. And before he gets to the strength of verse 5, notice in 1 to 4 how he talks about the things that would hinder us from talking about Christ. Because the Corinthians aren't any different from us. They're facing the same kind of temptations and distractions and distortions about the gospel. So these first four verses, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 4, are very, very applicable. They're very relevant to what you and I are dealing with right now. And he says there are some things that threaten to distract us in this work of ministry. Of course, alluding to what's happening in Corinth, but, but this is also for our benefit and our instruction, our training in righteousness. So this is to us too. Look at what he says, verse 1. He says, having been called to this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now again, that was true of Paul. We only see minor, minor moments in some of his prison epistles where he's kind of discouraged and sad and he's alone and he asks Timothy to bring his coat and something to read. But for the most part, Paul never lost heart. But we can't say that with the same confidence about the Corinthians. The word here means exhausted and utterly spiritless. In other words, emotionally and spiritually cashed. How many are emotionally and spiritually cashed this morning? Just, it's been such a hard week. And there's been so much on our lives. Paul, you just don't know what we've been through this week. And I'm worn out. I'd love to come this afternoon, and you're under no obligation. I'd love to come, but I, I, honestly, I don't know if I can give another minute to it. I understand that. That's what it means when he says, don't lose heart. The only reason we lose heart is because we're laboring, and that's hard work, and the resistance is strong. That's why Paul points us back to the mercy of the Lord. He says, oh, don't lose heart, because we've received mercy when we had a time of prayer yesterday in the building before we started work we talked about lamentations 323 that every single morning god's mercies are fresh and new today when you woke up there was a plate if i can speak this way there was a plate of fresh mercy waiting for you god knows what you're going to deal with today god knows what i'm going to deal with today god knows how tired we are God knows how much there is to do. God knows all the responsibility of the coming week, whether it's work or VBS or raising kids or traveling or whatever the case may be. He knows all of that. And this morning when we woke up, like when you're in a nice hotel and you get room service and they bring in the plate with the platters, you, uh, isn't that fun? You know, you, you know that, that's what God had waiting for us. Fresh mercy that will cover all that we need today. And because of that, look back at the verse, we don't lose heart. We may be weary, we may be exhausted, but we will not lose our spirit of strength and of joy. Then he says, second, we may be tempted to walk in craftiness by adulterating the word of God. That's the opposite of being upfront and bold with the truth and appealing to people's conscience. Notice the implication of the words here. That changing, adapting, or softening the word of God, usually for the express purpose of trying to make it more attractive to the listener, 
he calls that adulterating the word. The word there literally means to ensnare. So let's think through this. The exact opposite is being accomplished by trying to draw people in and trying to make it more palatable. Listen now, this is very important. By trying to make it more palatable and massaging the truth instead of that being effective, 2 Corinthians 4.2 says that it's actually corrupting their hearts and trapping them into believing a false gospel. Not only is it counterproductive, but it actually harms them. All because we try to be clever and manipulative with the gospel. How many know this morning the gospel doesn't need our help? It doesn't need us to figure out how to make it better. The truth stands on its own. So here's the correct alternative. And this is what this church, I pledge to you, will always stand for unwaveringly and uncompromisingly. I don't say that with pride or with saying we've got it figured out. I say it with humility that this is what God has called us to and this is what the Spirit will do. We are just going to make the truth plain to people. I'm not a lofty speaker. I'm not highly educated. I don't know how to be entertaining. I'm just not that smart or that funny. What I will pledge to you is I or anyone who speaks in this pulpit will make the truth plain to you. Because that's what we're called to do. Not to adulterate the word of God. This is not hard what we're doing this morning. What are we doing? We're walking through the text. We're saying this is what the text says and then we're asking the Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts. That's all we're going to do. And that's all we need to do. How people react to the word is up to them. We saw last week the five kinds of fruit. There are different ways people are going to react. Some people are going to reject it out of hand. Some people will consider it, think about it, maybe never do anything with it. Some people will take it, receive it, pray some prayer, and then never grow one ounce. Some people will become soft and kind of, and then others will keep reproducing fruit. How people respond to the gospel is not up to us. That's up to the Lord and how they respond to his conviction. What we are going to do as pastors, church members, people who love the Lord, is we're just going to make the truth plain to people. Here's what it says. Here's what God's talking about. Here's how you need to respond. How they respond is up to them. You can't force somebody to make a decision for Christ. Now he says, third... Not everybody will respond. It's another reason why we might get weary. But we have to understand the reason for the rejection. Look back at verse 3. It's because the enemy of the gospel has blinded them so they can't see the light of God's mercy extended out to them. The reason the devil has done this is because he knows that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Why else is there so much opposition to Christianity while the other religions of the world are allowed to thrive and flourish and they're even being mainstreamed and promoted? Why is it that the Bible is the one that's banned while other books about weird visions or vampires or wizards or how to build a bomb are openly sold but you can't take a Bible and talk about it on the streets where Bob's going back to? Why is that? 
The enemy uses his power and his influence over the world, look at the text, to keep people in darkness. He blinds their minds so he can keep them in slavery and in bondage to sin, Romans 8.15. And so they can't discover the gospel of Christ. But the gospel is powerful and it's able to change lives and it, we shouldn't be disheartened by the opposition. We should be more fervent to tell the truth to people. But then Paul gives one more provision, one more warning, warns us about one more temptation in verse 5. He says, make sure we don't preach ourselves. Preaching, teaching, sharing our faith, guiding kids, sitting down and explaining a Bible story with somebody this week. It is not to be about us. It's not to be about making ourselves feel better. It's not to be centralized to our needs and emotions. It's not to glorify or draw attention to us. It is only to be about Christ. And it is only to be about the fact that we are his servants. That's the term that Paul uses. Now, that's not exactly relevant as the world of the church defines it, is it? To just say, we're going to be sharing the gospel of Christ. We're going to be talking plainly about what we believe. We're not going to try to manipulate people's hearts. We're not going to try to do anything. We're not going to preach ourselves. We're just going to talk about Christ. And people will say, well, well, you don't know what you're doing. And I say to you and to them, the Holy Spirit is really not concerned about people's opinions. Now, I don't mean that, please understand, I don't mean that to be arrogant or snide or flippant. The passage says that the proof of the integrity of our ministry is whether we preach Christ first and foremost. I don't, as your pastor, have the option this morning of preaching other than Christ. I, I'm not given that license by Scripture. I'm told, preach Christ first and foremost. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I'm still trying to please men, I'm not a bondservant of Christ. Now, I know that's difficult. We talk about it a lot. But that's a core value of this church. It must be about Christ. Because the people in this town, the people in Kenosha, Oak Creek, Milwaukee, Chicago, or where Bob's going back to in Southeast Asia, or wherever you've been before or are going next, the people there need the light of the gospel because the world's dark. So if we don't share the light, it's going to keep them in darkness. And if we center the message on ourselves, it's not going to change them one bit. Listen, it... it, it Talk about getting weary. A gospel, and I'm not even going to use the word, forgive me. Preaching about ourselves is tiring. I listen to preachers. Sometimes some just bless me and encourage me and strengthen me and teach me and educate me so much. Others, I just hear them saying the same thing over and over, and people just flock to it. And I say to myself, that just, that wears me out. The word of God is living and active, and every time we open it, there's something fresh. There's fruit to be taken in and looked at and eaten and then reproduced in others. How can what I say this morning be better than the Word of God? How can my opinion supersede what the Spirit wants to teach? All right, I've labored the point. Our responsibility, look back at the verse, is to name the name of Christ. 
It's to declare him as Savior and Lord and Messiah. And we're never going to stop standing for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's Revelation 1.9. It was the church that my father chose for a theme verse for his church when I was growing up. And I've never forgotten and never stopped liking it. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. If your words this week as you minister to kids are about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, God will bless that immensely. That's all we have to do. Now that being said, let's get into the second half real quick where Paul talks about the reality of who we are and what we face as we serve the Lord and as we communicate his word. This is not just to pastors. This is to the church. We know we don't preach ourselves because the gospel points people to Christ and he's the only one who can save. But even in doing that, there are ways that we can communicate the message that still points it back to us. So the spirit gives us a second reason. He says, this is why we should not preach ourselves. Look back at verse 7. We have this treasure, the gospel, the grace of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. The second reason why we don't preach ourselves is because we are clay pots. We're just vessels made of dirt. We're vessels made of earth. Now, clay pots are very interesting. They don't have great value. They're easily broken, but they're often used to hold the most expensive plants, and they have an important role. Nobody looks at a beautiful plant in a clay pot and says, wow, that clay pot is phenomenal. Look at that. It's made of dirt. And it looks just like 8,000 other clay pots. Wow. You look at the flower and you go, oh, it's beautiful. What a phenomenal creation of God. You're not looking at the branches on there. You're looking at the fruit. Look at that fruit. You just want to take off a piece and put it in your mouth. It's so wonderful. Nobody looks at the clay pot. And that's why Paul uses the spiritual analogy here. Analogy here. He says, if we preach about ourselves, if we talk about ourselves and sharing the gospel, then we're talking about things that have little value and are not durable or lasting, and they don't draw anybody's interest because they're a dime or dozen. But there's a constant temptation, isn't there, to, to instead just try to be funny and entertaining which we think will cause people to, to somehow be one to Christ who says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. But, but we think that if we can get people to look about us and talk about us, that somehow they'll be drawn to the gospel. This is the great mystery and the great deception of the American church over the last 30 years. If we talk about ourselves, if I stand up here and talk about myself this morning, First of all, you're going to fall asleep. And second of all, it's not going to matter to you because I'm a clay pot just like you are. So why is my conversation, why is what I have to say any better than what you would have to say? i I, I got to tell you, I was so blessed yesterday seeing over five dozen of you serving so willingly 
And as I walked through that building, walked around and tried to talk to people and just see what was going on, I thought about some of the conversations that we've had over the years and some of your stories and your experiences and how the Lord has changed each of our lives through redemption in Christ. And now here we are, and we're standing in this strange old building at the corner of two neighborhood streets somewhere in Wisconsin, and we're trying to create a mountain lodge out of a building so kids can come and hear about God's mercy and how to live in Christ. And, and, and I'm watching our kids, and they're walking in the neighborhoods with their flyers, and they're coming back, and I'm just thinking, think about this. We're just a bunch of clay pots. Bob's out there doing incredibly difficult ministry, and he won't be offended when I say this. He's just an ordinary guy. He used to try to get drugs off the street uh, in Racine, but the Lord spoke to him. I remember some of the conversations we had, and he started to open up the door. And I remember the day he said to me, I think I'm going to Southeast Asia. And I looked at him like, what? You're retired. Enjoy. And no, I'm, the Lord's calling me to Southeast Asia. And God's given him a ministry that is dramatic and brings hope to people. But listen, talk to him. He's no different from you and I. We started this series on bearing fruit and about having fresh fruit in our lives. And we're studying, look back, we're studying 2 Corinthians 4 because the plant that bears fruit has to be held by something that will support it and keeping growing it to maturity. And it usually starts with a clay pot. I did some research this week on how clay pots are formed and why they're so valuable to gardeners. I found a great website, and I started to read the descriptions that I'll read to you in a minute. And I knew that even though whoever had put them on there hadn't intended them to have any spiritual implication whatsoever, as I read them, the Holy Spirit just said, will you look at this? This is 2 Corinthians 4. This is what I'm talking about when I say to you, believer, when I say to you, church, you're a bunch of clay pots. Don't be offended by that. The clay pot has a very specific purpose, and there are properties of it that I want to teach you to tell you why I chose that analogy, why I said you are earthen vessels. In biblical times, clay pots were formed by a guy sitting at a pottery wheel and taking the clay and molding it and shaping it and forming it in the shape of a pot. Now, the Lord knows that's a good comparison. He knows that that will help us understand. The Lord doesn't use analogies by accident. He doesn't just throw out words and hope that they stick. Everything has a purpose. So when he says to you and to me, you are earthen vessels, we should say, all right, what do we know about earthen vessels? If we're going to know ourselves and know how to live for him, then we need to understand the essential characteristics of a clay pot. I want to give you three this morning. Three essential characteristics of a clay pot as it is formed that makes it effective once it's used. The first is called plasticity. Everybody say that because you're bored. Plasticity. Isn't that a great word? Just toss it out in conversation this week. I'll have the burrito plasticity size, please. No idea what's going on. Plasticity. The clay has to have plasticity. It's the capability to be molded and to receive a shape. In simple terms, the clay has to be flexible and pliable. 
Now, here's how the website, this is not a Christian website. This is not a 2 Corinthians 4 website. This is just your basic website about clay pots. This is how it describes it. Without a very high level of flexibility, the clay simply won't be workable on the wheel. Even moderately plastic clays take a toll on the potter's hands and wrists due to the strength and pressure required to make the clay move. In other words, the first step toward a clay pot being formed is that its essential nature must be soft and elastic because if it's resistant in nature, the potter will get weary as he tries to shape the clay into what he needs it to be. Now, do you know this morning that we can be a source of weariness to the Lord? It's not that God gets tired because he's God. It's that as potential clay pots, if our hearts and lives are resistant rather than moldable, essentially we will exasperate him in trying to do what he wants to do with us. We'll make him tired. I don't know about you, but I don't want to make the Lord tired this week in trying to deal with me. You ever deal with that as a parent? Come on. How many, how many know that world as a parent? Raise your hands. Come on. Everybody that's a parent should be raising their hand right now. You ever have those days with your kids where you're trying to mold and shape them and teach them what's right, and you find the 65th piece of clothing on the floor, and you just, ah! You just get exasperated. How many times? I never thought I'd turn to my parents. How many times have I told you not to throw the clothes on the floor? I'm not naming which child at this point. How many? And you just, you, by Thursday, you just go, oh. You and I can do that to the Lord. He's our Father. And when we keep doing the things that frustrate His molding and shaping of our lives, at some point He gets exasperated to the point that he's either going to discipline us or he's going to give us a trial that will reshape us. He wants to fill us with his spirit. He wants to show us his power in and through lives. Now we can either accept that and yield to that and find joy in that or actively or passively resist it. But if we resist it, he's going to get weary and the things are going to go like this. So in our lives, spiritually, there has to be plasticity. We have to be flexible and ready. If the Lord changes direction, we don't say, well, I don't want to do that. We go with it because that's how he leads. And he knows better than us. When you look at your life, when you look at how the Lord has led you and what he's asked of you, do you see more times of plasticity or do you see more times of inflexibility? It's a very important question. Do you see more times of yielding and walking by faith? Or do you see resistance? Are things out of shape in your life spiritually because you keep pushing against the Lord? Second quality. When the clay is being formed, it must have strength. Reading again. Clay must be elastic, but it also has to retain enough strength to stand upright, or we would say stand firm, when thrown and shaped, unquote. Otherwise, if the clay doesn't have any strength to it, 
it just becomes kind of soupy soil. It just kind of lays there wet and ugh. So you've got to have some strength and some firmness to it. Now, sometimes we fall into the delusion that as believers, we can just kind of be soft and non-resistant and not really do anything and not take a stand for our faith and that the Lord will just shape us and mold us and make us. And then when God tries to do that, we get upset that he's not doing what we want. That's not what God has called us to. If we are earthen vessels, if we're clay pots, then he says, yes, you have to be plastic and mold and shapeable, but you also have to live in strength, which is why I give you my spirit. You will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In other words, the spirit gives us the strength and the fortitude and the conviction and the endurance that cannot be defeated. Ephesians 3 says the Lord gives strength with power through his spirit in our inner man. So at the same time that we're yielding to him, he's taking that old resistance and he's replacing it with spiritual power. Look at what Paul says here in verse 7. He says it's the surpassing greatness of his power. How many want the surpassing greatness of God's power this week? I do. I don't want to be all soft and and I don't want to be... I want to be just that right level of flexibility that as God shapes with the surpassing greatness of his power that we become firm in our convictions and firm in our faith and firm in our ministry. That's what he's called us to. Here's an interesting fact as we do that. Clay actually contains coarse particles that give it strength. In other words, it has rough remnants of its past that form into something different that's stronger. Let me translate that. All of the experiences of your old self and my old self are little coarse bits of clay that teach us and shape us to be useful in the master's hands. Now, we're told in Romans 6 and 7 not to continue in them not to keep creating little coarse pellets so that grace may abound. What those little pellets that remind us, they, they give us perspective. This is who I was. This is what I look like. And now God's going to take, take that, change that, shape that, conform that to him. So I look back and I see what I was like without Christ. I don't want to be there anymore. So God will even take the dirty, the old self, and he'll put it in there and he'll transform it and make something new. Isn't that cool? This is what gives us strength to endure. So we have to have plasticity. We have to have strength. Look at the third thing. The third component of the development of the clay is water absorption. We read again. Clay absorbs water when it's being formed into a shape which is why the longer the clay is worked on the wheel, the softer it becomes. Think about that. The longer the potter works with the clay, the more he puts water on it. If you've ever watched this, I was going to find a video this morning and just didn't have time. They put water on it to keep the clay pliable. And as the clay keeps getting worked, the water absorbs into there. They have to add more water and it keeps absorbing in. 
Now that's a spiritual principle. The more we have of the Spirit and the more He has of us, the greater will be the sensitivity that we have toward His nature and toward His, his leading. I'm calling it the law of the water and the clay. The more we have of the Spirit, the more the Spirit has of us, the more we will be sensitive to what He's doing and how He's leading. Listen again. If the clay is hardened, which is a metaphor for the heart, we talked about it last week with the unripe fruit, if the clay is hardened, it absorbs less water. In other words, less of the Spirit's influence and control. If the clay is hardened, it absorbs less water and it's tiring to the potter. But once it's formed, spiritual principle number two, it tends to dry out more quickly than other substances, so it needs water more often. In other words, God doesn't want us to be dried fruit. He doesn't want us to be dried clay. He wants us to have absorption. The spirit is symbolized in water. He wants us to have absorption, which is the key to growth. One article says clay pots are porous and provide good aeration. Air and water pass through the walls and dry out the soil. Now that seems like a bad thing, except in drying out the soil, the soil then demands more oxygen, which activates fertilization and the roots grow. Now you've just gone, whoa, wait a second, that's a botany lesson. God knows all this. He uses this analogy on purpose. Because he says, as flexible, strong pots that are being developed, now you need absorption of me. You need the spirit to infuse your life and be all in all. And you need to yield yourself to him. And as that happens, growth takes place. Here's the key. All three of those things, plasticity, strength, and water absorption, have to be in perfect balance for the clay to be good. That means our faith has to be flexible. When we trust the Lord, we have to know that the next day he might take us in a different direction. Not because he's toying with us, but because that's better for us. And because we get stuck in our ways and we think, well, I will only do this. And God says, mm, no, we need to change it up. It means that our convictions must be strong and unwavering, and it means that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Now let me finish. Why is that important? Why can't we just be average clay pots who sit there doing little, not much to look at, but just getting by each day? Look at verses 8 to 9 and we're done. The answer is in these verses. He says we can't afford to do that because there is going to be major opposition to us. There's going to be major opposition to the ministry in general. Whether it's through personal attacks, whether it's through snubs and rumors, whether it's through email and social networking, whether it's through spiritual warfare affecting our family or our job or our health, whether it's through emotional and physical difficulty that relates to our walk, whether it's weariness, whatever it is. The phrase at the start of the verse 8 says that we're hard-pressed. Like the olive in the press that goes in there and gets mashed so that the oil will come out. But notice what he says. He says we're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. 
We're confused by all of it. Sometimes it doesn't make sense and it's hard to take personally and you're hurt, but we will not despair. We may even get persecuted or harmed, but the Lord will never leave our side. How do we endure these things? We endure these things not by some special power from the Lord, just for those occasions, even though he'll give that. Paul says in verse 10, the way we endure is by finding joy that we get to share in what Christ dealt with. Now hear this, I'm just about done. He doesn't say the way we'll endure is God will work in a magnificent way and empower you so you won't have to deal with anything. We know the Lord's good and he's faithful and he'll give us his power. He says the way you endure, the way Bob's going to endure in a couple weeks when he goes back is by saying, what a joy that I get to share in what Christ shared with. Now that seems backwards to our thinking. So I'm going to rejoice in sufferings? Yeah, that's actually what the Bible says. So I'm going to persevere in trials? Mm-hmm, that's what James 1 says. Well, that sounds too difficult. No, it's just being able to understand and be like Christ more. If God keeps bailing us out and keeps saying, oh, it's okay, you're hurting, I'll just give you a bunch of power and I'll make you feel better. How will we ever grow? If I keep picking my kids' clothes up off the floor, what are they going to do? When they're 17, they'll be throwing the clothes on the floor. Well, Dad's going to come along and pick them up. At some point, they have to know what it's like to be me. And to be Julie. At some point, listen now, important. At some point, you and I have to know what it's like to be Christ. Notice how many times in these verses, verses 10 to 11, four times Paul names the name of Jesus. We get the contrast of experiencing the cross of Christ in order that we may know the resurrection of Christ. Or as he says in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable to his death. The order seems backwards, but the Lord lets us know that his power and his life is what help us get through the difficulty because we live in him. You and I are average people. We are saved by God's incredible grace. Now we are given a tremendous responsibility to not only bear fresh fruit in our lives, but to contribute to the growth of fruit in the lives of others. And we may be tempted to lose heart, and we may kind of be discouraged as we watch the truth be changed, and we may feel weird that we stand for the gospel, and we may even face resistance and opposition. And there will be times where we wish, Lord, I wish I was more than a clay pot. But that's what God made us to be, specifically for the reasons we've talked about this morning, to be shaped and used to be effective for him. Listen, this week and every week, we have a tremendous opportunity to serve the Lord and to grow fresh fruit, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. And I pray that we will use the truth that God's given us to be powerful and effective for him, not as ceramic vases, but just as simple earthen vessels 
that God uses. Let's pray together. As your heads are bowed, I want to just take a second. I, I really don't know how the Lord's spoken to you this morning. I, I hope and pray this has not been confusing. But at some point, there was something that the Holy Spirit connected to your heart. Whether it's being inflexible and not being willing to trust the Lord like you should. Or living in weakness and not the confidence that he promises that he'll give us. Or maybe you just haven't been open to the work of the Holy Spirit and his leading. And you just struggled against that. I don't know what it is. I don't need to know. It's between you and the Lord. But this morning, as your co-laborer in Christ, who has his own share of difficulties and sin and problems and weaknesses, I do want to appeal to us today that we be firm in our faith, firm in the truth, and that we be the vessels that God needs us to be. I encourage you just as I talk and pray that you would go before the Lord and just ask him to mold and shape you in fresh ways this morning. To use you in unexpected ways like Bob two years ago, not expecting what the Lord would lead him to. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your goodness to us. You're so patient, so kind, so forgiving when we don't deserve it. And Lord, you've given us this great and glorious calling to be earthen vessels that you've entrusted with the greatest treasure that man will ever know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, may we be pliable and flexible and yet strong, ready to serve, ready to be used. Lord, filled with your spirit. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. I pray for myself this morning that you would do this work in our lives and that we would be yielded to you so that the fruit that comes out of our lives, the fruit that comes out of our ministry, the fruit that comes out this week in our Vacation Bible School, Lord, would be so fresh and wonderful and powerful and that people would taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, we thank you that you do this work you're slow to anger, rich in love, compassionate with us. Bless us and help us, we pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. It's so living and active and wonderful. We thank you for how it changes us and shapes us. We love you when we pray this in Jesus' name.